Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. How many of you experienced leftover lunch bag letdown today? Please, I beg, enough of the cranberries! Hey! Here's Scott Thompson! I strongly disagree with that. I will have the leftovers till they're gone or they spoil in the fridge. Usually it's the former. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, glad you could make it. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Uh, the song today picked by Diana Weeks. Of course, we spread the love around here at uh, Hamilton Today. Diana, picking that song. Okay, explain your choice, please, Diana. It was just a last-minute decision. Uh, Will had said, hey, Diana, did you pick that song yet? And I said, oh, no, shoot. And then the first song that came to my head was that one. I like that song. It feels like a good song for a Wednesday. You know, we're floating on. We're doing our thing. Wait a second. Is it Wednesday? Oh, no, you're right. Is it? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Oh, it is. It is Wednesday, right? You know, it's funny because yes. I'm sitting listening. I'm listening to all of this, and uh, and I'm sorry, but it's the father in me because my daughter comes up to me and she goes, "Listen to this, Dad. What do you think?" And she plays me uh, a few bars, and I say, "Talking Heads," and she said, "No, it's not Talking Heads. It's Modest Mouse." Ooh, yeah. So that's. But do you hear? I, I don't. Know, I'm just an old guy. A little so I bit. Listen to the, and, I, I listen to, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not cutting it up, but it, it's interesting in listening to pop music as a guy in his 50s, considering my parents, well, I guess they were sort of listening to, to rock and roll, but there was a big shift in music, whereas now people are listening, young people are listening to music that spans like 60, you know, some odd years, and you can hear it in the influence, and there's another example of that. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> no, but I agree with you. There, there are some similarities there for sure. I, I think, yeah. All right. So uh, not new, but a favorite of yours, and uh, you decided to pull it out of the hat, and yeah. there you go. Will, do you want to add to this? You've heard this band before? Oh, yeah. I really like Modest Mouse. This is also one of my favorite songs. I clapped when Diana told me that she was picking it. And, uh, do you when, hear Talking Heads? I do, and I am a big Talking Heads fan, but I mean, I think partly because Float On came out when I was a teenager, and to me, this was a new song, new band. It didn't click the same way, but when you just said that, it was like my synapse fired, and I was like, oh my gosh, he's right. Right. Modest Mouse, there is a direct connection to Talking Heads there, at least in the sound of or, it. That's awesome. Or, or maybe I'm just being an old guy trying to hang on to the edge of my life. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> uh, sounded great. And that's, you know what, and, and like in our house, seriously, there is music playing all the time, except during the show, of course. Uh, there's music playing all the time, and I love that. And it, it's usually a mixture of whatever we're listening to and mostly what the kids, is li- or kids are listening to anyway. So uh, it's fascinating that you can do that. And I think the only thing that separates music between parents and the younger generation now um, 
if, uh, from my generation would be rap music. That's where that's where you know there's still that that generation gap. And people like Eric Alper and Alan Cross say, well, there's got to be something rebellious. You can't love everything they love. Yeah. And the class has gone silent again. All right, join us tomorrow for another uh, American Bandstand recap. <laughs> we thought you were making a poignant point. We didn't want to interrupt Scott. Yeah, we just no, let it sink in. No, you were in. lost. I saw you both on the Zoom. You were glazed right <laughs> over. Uh, Will went right out of the picture. I think he got his lunch. That was it. All right. Well, big news. Uh, as we know, the Canadian border has been opened to Americans, the land border, uh, since last August. But now, good news, the U.S. is finally opening its land border to Canadians, uh, and hopefully by November. Dr. Rodney Rohde is with us, professor and chair, clinical laboratory science program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University. Good afternoon, doctor. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. I hope everything's going well with you guys, too. So, good news. We're starting to hear that uh, that the border, or there is chatter about reopening the border between Canada and the U.S. This is the land border by November. What are your thoughts, and, and why is this decision happening now in your mind? Well, I think, first of all, I'm also excited about it, certainly between Canada and the United States. We know we've always been great trade partners and great friends, as far as that goes, as well as I'm also excited about the border opening with Mexico as well as we continue to try to deal with with those border concerns. But I think it came along, Scott, probably for a number of reasons. Um, one, I think there was some pressure uh, from trade and businesses and others that really, really did need that to happen, especially, and this is another factor, as Canada and the United States have seen vaccination rates continue to climb and other things uh, with respect to the Delta variant is starting to abate somewhat. It's starting to plateau and and starting to come down in most sectors in most states. Again, we have to be careful and be cautious and watch those those epidemiology numbers, but it is showing kind of a plateau right now. And what about the Mexican border, the southern border between Mexico and the United States? Uh, was that a factor in delaying the opening of the Canadian border, do you think? Do you think it's it was the purpose to have both of these open simultaneously? You know, perhaps. I don't, I don't have the insight into the uh, into the political side of this or into the governmental side. Of this. But even as far as the epidemiology and, and their struggle down there, I mean, we all know how this pandemic has affected. Are, are their numbers getting better as well? Well, the data that, uh, that the, the agencies are spouting right now are saying that things are getting better, that vaccination rates are climbing in both areas. I do think it's going to be more of a challenge, if we're honest, um, with our Latin American countries, with Mexico, just due to be to the migrant situation, as I'm mm-hmm. sure you guys are following as well. Here in Texas, you know, I live in Austin, in the near uh, nearby Austin, Texas, and certainly it's something we're watching. We had about, um, let's see, recently, at the beginning of this Delta surge, we were having about, oh, anywhere from, I would say, almost 12,000 cases a day, and our positivity rate was about 16%. That, that's in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, as of this past week, that has gone down to about half that, so about 8.7% positivity, and the cases have dropped a third down to like a little over 5,000. So or I guess over two-thirds down to about 5,000. So, again, we're watching those numbers. I guess the big concern with, with epidemiologists and public health officials will always be you know, are we plateauing and are we really truly going to see a lowering of case numbers and positivity going forward? 
I think we're all holding our breath, like we always do as we move into the winter. But we are seeing, Scott, higher coverage of herd immunity and vaccination rates. So, you know, as I've told you before, viruses tend to make us look silly at times. But I do believe uh, as we enter our third year of COVID-19 and what's been going on, we're going to continue to see whether it's through natural infection and, and people recovering from the infection and vaccines continually being put into arms that we're probably, you know, pushing that herd immunity up into those areas where we're going to start seeing a lowering of cases and deaths. At least that's our hope. So I think that, you know, absolutely uh, has to be taken into consideration when we consider the borders. When, with respect. obviously, we're vaccinating more on both sides of the country, there has been some concern up here about the combination of the vaccines. Do you think that will present a problem with with uh, both sides crossing borders? Uh, one has this or a, or a combination of, of various vaccines. Right. With, with respect to, like, mixing the yes. the vaccine types for boosters and things? Yes. Yeah, it, it, I think it can. I mean, right now, again, in the United States, all we really have officially approved is the Pfizer mm-hmm. uh, with respect to getting that third booster. Um, in other places, I know that um, if you've had the first mRNA vaccine, whether it's Pfizer or Moderna, some places are going ahead with the mixing. The United States, to my latest reading and understanding, is a hopefully going to approve Moderna and J&J soon mm-hmm. in the next week or two is what I've been seeing popping up in different sources. That's my hope is that that, go ahead, that, that goes ahead and happens ASAP. Both of my parents need their booster as well, and um, hopefully that will happen. I, you know, All the data has shown that mixing the, the mRNA vaccines has really not been a problem, but I think the FDA really wants to look at that, and they're looking at the dose amount, not to get off too far off track here, but they might be able to half the dose for that Moderna third boost. So I think that's part of it, and we're just, you know, kind of being really careful as we move forward with that decision. As far as the timing of this, doctor, is this just the fact that we have got the vaccination rates, as you've just alluded to, or uh, is this pressure from business? I know with this, uh, us being a northern country and snowbirds like to flock down to the sunny south every year, how much pressure is, the, is there on those border cities to have it opened, oh, I, or, or are we just have, there? Yeah, I have no doubt there's pressure, uh, certainly from business pressure and others who want to open up those borders between uh, really both areas. But in your opinion, is it time for this? Is it time? Mm -hmm. Um, I I think it's time as long, again, as we have documentation and proof. I think that's going to be, that's really the rub. Uh, Is there going to be strict checking and verification of vaccination status? Because testing right now, to my understanding, is not mandated. Uh, to cross back and forth, uh, other than what's already maybe uh, associated with different airlines and things like that. But from the official stance right now, to my understanding, it's really a vaccine requirement. And I just I just read a document right before you called that talked about um, spot checks and different ways to kind of verify uh, from travelers that they're vaccinated. So, to me professionally and in my expert opinion, that's going to be the, that's going to be the headache is. Can you look at every person? Can you look at every document and verify that it's, you know, an official vaccination status? That's going to be tricky, I think, if we're honest, uh, because of, you know, people finding documentation in other ways that aren't, you know, absolutely honest. And so I think that's going to be the tough part is can both governments, all three governments, work together to find a way to at least ensure high rates of validation of those vaccines? 
Dr. Rodney Rohde with us, Professor and Chair, Clinical Laboratory Science Program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University. Good news, uh, sometime in, our, in November, with no firm date yet, uh, the land border between Canada and Canadians getting to the U.S. will hopefully be open, or should be open by uh, the middle, or sorry, the beginning of November. Doctor, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care, sir. We talked about this way back uh, after the federal election. Do you remember that? Do you remember there was an election? Um, I think it was between the third and the fourth wave. I can't remember exactly when. Um, but but I predicted that... Uh, <laughs> I predict... Exactly. Uh, I predicted that uh, the... I, I don't think Justin Trudeau will run in another election because the sole purpose of this election that no one wanted was to gain a majority. And obviously it didn't happen, didn't get the ball, so why hang around? Do you have the battle... Uh, you know, or do you have battle fatigue? Or are, you, or are you ready to to just bear down and, and go through it all again? Let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data, and with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, buddy. What do you got for me today? Well, I was. Uh, do you think that the Prime Minister has run in his last election? Yes, and you know I've said that to you before, but I still maintain that. Uh, that view, barring, you know, I'll, I'll give myself a little way out and collect a splinter to her, barring some, you know, other unforeseen circumstance, some other catastrophic global event like the pandemic where it may be difficult uh, to leave. But but otherwise, I think um, his intention was always to step aside after uh, winning this election because he always felt he was going to win it. Certainly we know that, Scott. So, yeah, I think it would be uh, uh, would be unusual for him to stay. And there's reason for this too, right? It's very hard. Uh, there's only been one uh, four-term prime minister yeah. in Canada's history, and that takes us back two centuries ago. Uh, and his own party likes to win, and I think they will recognize, as will the prime minister, that to do that, they maybe need to shuffle a few chairs um, on the deck, and hopefully it doesn't become the Titanic for them. So does he, uh, is this about uh, him not wanting to do it, uh, his head's not in it anymore, or is this the party realizing that we passed the best before date here and it's time to install a new leader to take us into another another well, election? There's, yeah, there's no pressure on the, to be, you know, to, to be fair, there's no pressure from him yet coming, on him yet coming from the party. Uh, he's got them three election wins, albeit two were minorities, but I think they're more common in this day and age. So he still controls the party. He still gets to pick his date of departure. But uh, liberal political operatives are pretty stupid people. That's why they win elections as often as they do. So they, they will know that. But I think the prime minister himself, you know, he's a, a relatively young man, as you and I would agree. It, uh, he turns 50 in January. He uh, He's or December, sorry, Christmas Eve. But we should all know that, I guess. Uh, he yes. will have other things he wants to do. Um, that doesn't mean he's going to pack it up anytime soon. I think he's going to go very hard over the next year, try and get some legacy items. And then uh, if he is going to go, I think we'll get some sign of that a year from now or you know, maybe in the late summer. We're starting to see more and more of Christia Freeland in yeah. roles that uh, don't necessarily require her attention. Uh, is this a slam dunk for her? No, it's never a slam dunk leadership uh maybe the only exception being paul martin when he scared everybody out of the field in in 2003 when he finally won 
Um, I wouldn't suggest she'd be the only entrant. She's certainly being favored right now. Is that a good or a bad thing? Who knows? Uh, but uh, she, she would be a, a favorite, but she doesn't uh, get a cakewalk unless nobody just decides to run. And, you know, so many things can happen between now and then. The economy could uh, find itself in a difficult pickle. She could make some mistakes. Things change quickly in politics, as we know. Who's the stronger candidate uh, candidate for this job? Is it Christia Freeland or is it Mark Carney? Probably right now, just based on experience and connection to the party, because party members vote for the leader, right? Um, and Freeland has done the, the spade work. Mark Carney's still on the outside. He certainly has lots of fans, and he certainly has lots of skills. But leadership races uh, are won often by people who have done the best work in and around the party. I think the Liberals still have an open class membership, meaning any other people could join. So Mark Carney will have to demonstrate some political skills in signing people like up like that if he chooses to go. But yeah, she she right now, right now, today, probably has the edge. Uh, and is that, would it be a huge advantage for the feminist president or prime minister to hand it over to a female prime minister? Well, it's fitting. Uh, and, you know, we know Justin Trudeau likes symbols, uh, and he likes to... Or, or is that just too simple a narrative? Uh, in politics, sometimes the, simple is be- the simplest is best. I mean, if it was a contested race, he would not, uh, and, you know, want to be seen uh, to be interfering with that race. Uh, even though he may be favoring Christopher Friedland right now because she is the only person we know who's guaranteed a return spot to cabinet because the prime minister said as much a week or so ago. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, if, if she did win, I'm certain he will try and suggest the conditions were created by his governing style for Christopher Friedland to become uh, the leader of the Liberal Party and next prime minister. Do you expect this minority to last as long as the last one, which was, I guess, 18 months? Yeah, I think it's sort of got the same. Yeah, I mean, again, history would say that that's the case. It may go a little longer, but it's so early to tell, right? Uh, so much will still depend on the pandemic and the recovery. And, you know, we're already seeing signs of a return to normal in the political front, as we did during the election campaign. But safe to stay with the consistency of history that they tend to go around 18 months, sometimes two years. Tim Powers with us, Chairman of Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data, uh, talking about post-election uh, fallout and if the Prime Minister will stay, or Christia Freeland, uh, a lot of people talking about her, perhaps, as the next leader of the Federal Liberal Party. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, my friend. Take care. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. There's this soft blue. Look at the beauty of that color. And it's so thin. And you're through it in an instant. This air, which is keeping us alive, is thinner than your skin. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sliver. It's, it's immeasurably small when you think in terms of the of the universe that is uh william shatner talking about uh the earth's atmosphere and going up into space and uh 10 minute flight i guess they had weightless list for about four minutes or so and then uh t- and then landed back down on earth which to me is the most bizarre 
a part of this whole thing. Uh, not so much that we've seen a civilian in space, but that they can land a rocket right down on the launch pad exactly the same way that it took off. Um, not splashing into an ocean, not parachutes, not landing like an airplane, but almost like a Twilight Zone episode, a, a rocket coming back down and stopping and then landing again vertical on a launch pad, which uh, to me just is, it, again, it looks it looks like we should be watching this in black and white. And if you look very, very closely, you can see the fishing line holding the rocket, you know, as if it's some sort of prop or, or, or such. But uh, again, very short, only 10 minutes uh, up and back and four minutes of, uh, of floating around and such. Uh, but certainly enough to uh, to get onto the edge of space and certainly experience uh, what all of it is like. And uh, it'll be also fascinating to see, and we're just waiting for Paul Delaney now, um, it, it'll be fascinating to see if, in fact, um, the response to this is, is more supportive than when the bazillionaires went up in space. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, Alan Carswell Chair for the Public Understanding of Astronomy, University Professor, York University, and with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I am indeed, Scott, and not quite on top of the world, but getting close. <laughs> but boy, we yeah, it seems we all are. Uh, I know you're a really busy guy today, but your thoughts on on what happened? We were just playing the clip of William Shatner, and I, I remember, uh, and we just talked to Chris Hadfield uh, yesterday, but I've talked to many astronauts who have talked about what it is like looking through and, and getting up to the Earth's atmosphere where it's literally Earth on one side and space on the other. The same thing obviously impacted William Shatner. Correct. Uh, it's often referred to as, as the overview effect. As you look down and you see the world literally spinning beneath you, they had a great view of that today. Not quite as good as uh, Chris Hatfield and the International Space Station, but nonetheless, the commentary about the passing through the Earth's atmosphere, I mean, it is wafer thin. I mean, we're talking about tens of kilometers of air separating us from the void of outer space. And the moment you get rid of the air, of course, it's the blackness. It's my domain. It's the astronomical domain. It is a very, very thin barrier and it obviously was something that uh, William Shatner was not quite prepared for and it really did impact him emotionally. Do they go through a re-entry in a, in, a, in a quick voyage like this similar to what the other astronauts would go through? No, not at all, not at all. So there's no uh, that flame and fire coming back no, in? None whatsoever. Uh, as, as you indicated, barely 100 kilometers up, which gives them their astronaut wings, but you're only just clear of the majority of the atmosphere. Uh, literally, the moment that capsule begins to come back down, it's only a minute or two before parachutes deploy, and that is the clue that we're not really traveling that fast. When you're coming out of orbit, you're traveling at, give or take, 17,000 kilometers an hour. Mm -hmm. This capsule only reached a maximum speed of about 3,000 kilometers an hour, and it certainly wasn't doing that when the parachutes deployed. So, no, a much more gentle reentry process. So is that the role of these companies and these bazillionaires is to get up and explore that edge of space, or are they trying to, to puncture that atmosphere? Virgin Galactic has stated quite openly that their primary aim is the suborbital realm for both humans as well as experiments. As scientists, we can do an awful lot in microgravity with a few minutes uh, of, of flight. We often uh, use balloons to sort of put us above the atmosphere. So there is certainly a science market and there is certainly uh, the human experience market suborbital. 
Blue Origin and SpaceX, SpaceX in particular, has claimed the, the, the higher ground, shall we say. They take people into orbit. They take satellites into orbit. And, of course, you know, the opportunity mm-hmm. to go to the moon and Mars is squarely in SpaceX's sights. So that's a much different experience, both in terms of what the human is going to experience, what the satellites are doing. Blue Origin wants to straddle the line. They're using the new Shepard rocket at the moment, but they're developing what they call the new Glenn rocket, which will be an orbital class vehicle very similar to the Falcon 9 and the Dragon. They have not debuted that yet. They're claiming the first flights next year. Uh, so they will end up in both markets, suborbital as well as orbital. So it'll be fascinating watching these companies develop in the next few years to see what part of this niche they all take. It is. Uh, it really is. I mean, I, I think I've said to you before, Scott, that NASA was never going to fly you or me into Earth orbit. Yeah. We had to have somebody like you know these guys, these billionaires, begin to develop the technology. They've spent 15 years and a lot of resources getting to this point. This has not been a cheap endeavor, and obviously they want a return on it. The return is not going to come just from space tourism. It's not just you and me. It's the ability to deploy satellites, to deploy science payloads, both suborbital and orbital, that is the real payback. And the the space tourism industry on the side is really great, and it gives people perspective and opportunities, but it's the whole package. It's not just flying the occasional people into orbit that is going to allow these companies to expand uh, this process. Can't let you go, uh, Paul, without asking you about that meteorite that went through that woman's roof and landed on her bed. I thought that was a snowball's chance in hell of that happening. And look what we have. Your thoughts. They should go and buy a lottery ticket is what I'd say. Uh, I mean, you know, that stuff is coming to ground all the time. And as our population increases, obviously the the possibility of having a human engage this activity is going to increase. It's probably happened a few more times than we've actually reported in the past, but people didn't realize what what the case was. They thought it was a kid who threw it through the window or something like that. But it is rare, uh, and you know everybody has lived to tell the tale. It's something for the history books. It's something for the record books. Sell the meteorite. You'll be able to replace the roof. Not a problem. <laughs> Good point. Paul Delaney with us, Alan Carswell, Chair for the Public Understanding of Astronomy, uh, Professor York University. Paul, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care, Scott. Cheers. Around the big round table, uh, Ted Michaels, Diana Weeks is with us, and producer Will Erskine uh, on the board. Uh, thanks for coming and, uh, and sitting around the table, we, uh, table, guys. We'd love to have you here. Poll question of the day, and we, a lot of people have been waiting for this. Uh, the borders now open into, or will, in November. I shouldn't say yet, but uh, it's still details to come. Borders opening up in November to allow Canadians to uh, make the land travel across the border and into the United States, of course, for Canadians, or for Americans. They've been allowed up here since August. Now it appears that uh, they're going to reciprocate come November. And it's interesting is uh, you know, the question of the day, are you eager to go? Some say right away. Some say end of the year. Some say next year. But the majority are saying no plans at all to go. Diana, what are your thoughts? Did you cross the border? No. You know what? We, um, My husband and I had plans to go to uh, Cleveland, Ohio uh, at the end of November. And we had our Airbnb booked and everything. But we just pulled out because, you know what, even though the land borders are open, I mean, I'm worried about the tests and all that. And I just feel like it's just not going to be worth it. 
Fascinating. Ted, your yeah. thoughts. Uh, borders open allow you to go down? Uh, or no. Are, a lot of people are becoming hesitant. Or are mm. hesitant. And it's saying, we're getting the same thing with dining. Even though you can and vaccine passports are available, people are still hesitant. Your thoughts, Ted? Um, I, no. I, I no. Uh, used to go across for shopping and stuff, and really, a lot of the stuff, you really got to know what you're looking for, and it, it's really not worth it anymore. The only way I'll go is if I go back to Lambeau Field, like I did a couple of years ago for that pilgrimage, uh, you know, football trip. But uh, um, it's got to be a special occasion because I'm still a little leery of, you know, doing all that stuff and crossing the border. And um, uh, how many people, when you go across the border, are fully vaccinated? Do you get into the whole thing of getting in an argument with somebody because they're not? You know, it's not worth it. It's really not. You know, you bring up a good point. Uh, obviously, Canadians up around the 85 uh, percent mark for at least uh, the first dose anyway of vaccination. Obviously, in the U.S., it's it's lower than that, depending upon which state that you're going to. Uh, you bring up an interesting point that eh, do you want to go to a place where it's not as as well off as far as vaccination rate as what it is in Canada? Will, would you do that? Do you feel good going down there with less than 85% of the people there vaccinated? <laughs> I'm not sure if I feel good, but I'm definitely considering a visit to some of my U.S. family members. I might wait until the new year and see how things are going. But uh, it's been something I've been mulling over for a while. So I, I, I have plans, I guess we could say. You know, you're opening up stadiums and such, and everybody's vaccinated. Uh, and even we we're talking to uh, Dr. Rodney Rohde from Texas earlier on, and he said, uh, you know, they're starting to see, even down there, some herd immunity, uh, which is a good sign. We do seem to be getting out of this. All right, Shatner in space, and then back down almost as fast as it went up. I couldn't believe how quick all of this uh, all of this was. Do you think this is going to change public perception of space travel in any way, Diana? I do. I think it's slowly happening. Like, I mean, I think, you know, Chris Hadfield said it best yesterday as well. Like, you know, years ago, the thought of, you know, people that weren't training for years on end to go into space are now going into space. And it's like, this is what we joked about, you know, being able to go into space and do outer space travel. And I think, I don't know, I I, I like it, but I think it's kind of creepy as well. Like, where does it Uh, end, you know? Billionaires in space there uh, a few weeks ago. Everybody was up in arms. Is it different if it's a William Shatner? I don't know, but I I thought it was interesting that he said everybody should go up in space. Well, obviously we can't. You know, we'd all love to. Um, I was more... I don't know, maybe as I get older, I get crustier, but it's like, okay, Bezos obviously is a bazillionaire. We know that. But how much money did he spend on this? You know, 12 minutes up and then down and boom. Yeah, it was fascinating from a scientific standpoint. But again, it, it's his money. And if, if some millionaire wants to pay $250,000, but aren't there more pressing items than, you know, having Bill William Shatner go up in space? Because in the that's end, that's a valid point. In the end, it's a you know, yeah, it's good for him, but it's a big PR stunt too, right? So, and the fact that we're talking about it proves my point. Will uh, public percent uh, public perception change because this is William Shatner? Everybody was upset when the billionaires went up. Uh, is, is it different when it's someone like this? Uh, I think there there is a softened public perception. I haven't seen as much of a uh, uh, lashing out at oh launching Will Shatner into space. And uh, I just to add on to what Shatner was saying. I think in the long run it is a good thing. There might be more pressing priorities right now, but as Shatner said, as Chris Hadfield attested, and we've heard all over the place, the more people who get to have this experience it changes their view of life on this planet and i this might be my inner trekkie coming out from how i was raised but 
I think that is a beautiful thing and something that could really benefit our, our whole human race in the long run. Good point. People going up and then coming down and telling the experience from a from a, a, an average perspective, I guess, if you can call it that, as opposed to uh, somebody who's a rocket scientist. So to speak. Uh, let's talk about... Yeah, let's talk about uh, uh, Facebook. Uh, once again, we know what happened last week. We talked about this with the uh, Senate hearings and such and the whistleblower. Now Facebook has come out uh, with some guidelines to sort of help that. I don't know that, whether that's going to work or not. We'll talk to Carmi Levy about that in a bit. But what I found fascinating, Leger has done a poll, and it, it seems that about half of the Canadian users of Facebook are not happy and have a negative opinion of the company. If that's the case... Why do we see this growing? Why do we see people still using it, Diana? I don't know. It's almost like, well, I think it's become like an addiction now for people, you know, to go on Facebook. You know, what do you do when you're trying to kill time? You go on Facebook. You know, what do you do when you're sitting in front of the TV watching something mindlessly? You're scrolling. Like, it's it's awful. But I think people are so used to it. I personally liked it when Facebook went down, uh, as well as Instagram, because I didn't yeah. have to go on it. It was very, like, liberating. Christian uh, Christian Bork of uh, Leger said, "Quote: There's sort of a sort of an I need you, but I don't love you relationship with Facebook." Your thoughts, Ted? Well, I you're talking to a guy that every time they change something on Facebook, I get mad. I liked it the yeah. way it was when it first started. Right? Leave it alone. What are you touching it for? Right? And they change. I all want this. Pong back. Exactly. Pong? Yes. Uh, <laughs> all those other games. So, you know, you're talking to a guy that, it, you know, I'm not what you call techno-savvy to begin with. So um, Will's nodding his head in agreement because generally in the station I say I've done something. What'd you do? I don't know. So um, I don't know. I just uh, fa- I use Facebook a lot for things like alerts when news conferences are being held. Yeah. When my team has, for example, the Packers sent out uh, all the time, you know, when their coach is speaking or Aaron Rodgers is speaking, that's what I use it for. But to sit there, you know, for hours upon hours, I saw somebody today posted, I'm taking a break for, from breakfast to watch Bill Shatter. Well, who cares? <laughs> who, who cares what you're doing? That's where it gets to be a little a little much, you know, when they share the too much information, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Diana's It'll be interesting agreeing. to see because many, many said even years ago that Facebook was done. It's you know with, with all these different platforms coming on that Facebook wouldn't survive. Yet it's still here. Why is that, Will? Uh, it really integrated itself into our whole social system. I think it's become ubiquitous. It's still how a lot of people keep in touch, even if it's not through Facebook itself. It's through Instagram, WhatsApp, other things that they own that are all just tentacles branching out from it. That said, I I have not looked at actual Facebook itself uh, in weeks. I just, I avoid it. <laughs> oh, you know what it's become? It's become one of those things. Oh, I don't use it anymore. <laughs> Thank you, Big Round Table. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. I joined Facebook because I think Facebook has the potential to bring out the best in us. But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Congressional action is needed. They won't solve this crisis without your help.
former Facebook employee, Frances Hogan, in her testimony before the Senate uh, Commerce Subcommittee on Consumer Protection and Facebook, her thoughts of it, um, lots, well, over the course of last week, I guess Facebook was public enemy number one. Uh, it just got trashed, whether it was uh, the 60 Minutes uh, episode and, of course, what we're talking about here with the testimony uh, in the Senate. And now a leger poll out that said uh, half of Canadians are not happy with Facebook. Then why are we still there? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and a journalist, is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Very, very well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks. So Facebook, uh, public enemy number one now, uh, they've, said, they've since announced that they are changing some things. Anything of significance from Facebook on all of this criticism? Yeah, what I find is, uh, is it's interesting. They've uh, announced an internal change. They have an online discussion group uh, that they use as part of the business platform that they use to run their operation. And uh, they say they're going to be making some of those online discussion groups private. They want to try to minimize leaks. Uh, but of course, in the wake of, uh, Miss, Miss Haugen's, uh, testimony, uh, it kind of comes as interesting. It's almost like they're, you know, sort of, you know, circling the wagons a little bit, tightening things down. They don't want people talking. They want their employees to not share externally, uh, even as another whistleblower, remember this name, Sophie Zhang, uh, says that she too is willing to testify in front of Congress. So Facebook basically going into, you know, let's, let's hunker down mode. Uh, because we don't want to, you know, have any more damage or damaging testimony out there. But at the same time, it looks like at least one ex-employee, inspired by what uh, happened last week, she says she's willing to step forward. And so I'm guessing the storm that we're seeing now around Facebook, uh, it's not going to ebb anytime soon. I think the shockwaves will will ease from last week, but we're probably going to have a few rounds to go ahead. I'm sure there are a few other ex or even current Facebook employees that are kind of willing to step forward to write what they feel is this uh, fairly immense wrong. Carmi, I remember when this uh, when this platform started and Twitter were the two basic front runners and then others came on after that. And many said years ago that Facebook would never survive. So how has it? Same with Twitter. I guess Trump helped Twitter, but many thought that these platforms would be gone by now. Well, you know, it's it's kind of hard to say no when you, you've invested years in building a network. It's one of the reasons why Donald Trump is so adamant about getting his Twitter account back. Uh, you mm. don't uh, willingly say goodbye to, eight, in his case, I think, 88 million followers. It takes a while to build that uh, to that level. And there's there's even though you don't pay for the service, there's a value to you in that. You have a bit of a megaphone. You that's your your digital world. And I think Facebook, more than any other player of its time, figured out that the power, uh, the staying power inherent in any social media platform isn't the features or anything like that. Really, it's it's the power of the network. And if you uh, tighten those links between you and those around you, your so-called Facebook friends, uh, you make it very difficult for someone who, even if they're really upset with Facebook, and as the Leger poll very clearly illustrates, most of us uh, really hate the company, and justifiably so, but we're not going to quit it anytime soon because that's where all of our friends are, and that's where our digital lives are. And most of us have spent a decade and a half getting to this point. It's an addiction that isn't going to be easily kicked. So in a sense, Zuckerberg, mission accomplished. Pretty much. You know, like that's, that's the thing. And I've, I've used the, the, the phrase talking out of both sides of his mouth, and I, I'll, I'll continue to use it because on the one hand, he'll, 
he'll he'll try to placate the masses. You know, we're doing everything everything that we can uh, to rein in misinformation, to you know, do right uh, ethically and morally by all of those who use our services. Uh, we don't want to cause harm. You know, we are a force for good. All that good stuff that PR people are dreaming up all day, every day. But out of the other side of his mouth, he realizes that, that it's all about engagement. Facebook is all about keeping us on the service for as long as possible. And whether we like it or not, the kind of content that is most engaging is the kind of content that is questionable, that is that will provoke anger, that will sort of get a reaction out of us. And so you know, they, they, if they want to survive and they figured this out, uh, they have to say just enough to get us off their back. But at the same time, they tweak the algorithm so that it keeps serving up the stuff that keeps us addicted. Never mind that it's bad for us. Never mind that it's the wrong thing to do, that it's immoral and unethical. It doesn't matter. Investors want their money, and this is how they're going to get it. So have we just accepted this love-hate relationship? I don't think we have. I think in the current context, we've reached a point of stalemate where we realize there isn't any much more that we can do to force Facebook to, to fly right uh, in the current regime. And that's a, an important distinction, because right now there are no laws that lawmakers could use to force Facebook in the right direction. That could change, though, and that's what we're looking at with this first round of whistleblower testimony and possibly more to come, is that the, uh, the, the tolerance of Facebook among the lawmaking community, the legislative community, uh, both in the U.S. as well as elsewhere, including here in Canada and also notably in Europe, uh, is wearing thin. Uh, they are starting to get really tired of big tech pushing governments around, big tech doing what they wish and getting away with it and causing all sorts of damage but not being accountable for the consequences of that damage. And so I think we are starting to see a bit of a sea change. It's a little slow for some, but it's starting to happen where lawmakers are saying, we've got to look at this differently. We need better laws, but... The approach that we've taken before, where we ask them to hire more moderators and, you know, compel them to have this kind of infrastructure in place, isn't going to work. We have to look at the algorithm. It's those algorithms that are killing us, and it's the algorithms that need to be subject to tighter scrutiny from a legislative perspective, and that's where the effort is going to be focused over the next few years. Are we going to see a new company that will prey on Facebook and everything they have done wrong? We're going to do it. We're going to do it right. We're going to have rules. We're going to have regulation. Or just does none of that appeal to the average user? Oh, I think that is inevitable. Uh, you know, the technology industry, if you look at the history of tech, no one company stays on top of the heap forever. So, you know, we may think that Facebook has won the war, but the reality is they've simply survived another battle. But uh, it, will Facebook be a, a thing in 30, 40, 50 years? I'd say probably not, um, because no company can stay dominant for multiple generations. And it's only a matter of time before something comes along that supersedes social media that is kind of the next big thing um and and facebook like like every technology giant before it uh it's it's used to working a certain way it will not be able to pivot to that new reality so you know patience is a virtue here among those who who feel that facebook is a scourge to society just wait long enough eventually something will come along that essentially that flanks it no one's going to introduce a better social media than facebook so facebook has already won that battle what we're looking at is the post-social media world. What replaces social media? I can guarantee you it, it will not be uh, an invention of Mark Zuckerberg. Wow. Carmi Levy with his tech analyst. Life beyond Facebook. Can you even imagine that? Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Great being here, Scott. You as well. 
Coming up, you know, we've been trying since yesterday to get somebody from the Ontario government uh, to come on and talk about capacity issues uh, as, you know, we're seeing the Leafs and Edmonton, I believe it is tonight. Uh, they're playing to a full house at Scotiabank Arena, and yet uh, gyms, restaurants, they're still at, at half capacity and such, and, and many are trying to figure out exactly uh, how you square all this. So we've been trying to get somebody on from the government, and nobody is really um, answering the call, per se. Uh, they have sent us a really nice message, and I won't bore you by reading the whole page because it's, it's really nothing there, but it ends off by saying the Chief Medical Officer of Health will continue to monitor the data and evaluate when it may be safe to consider lifting limits in other settings. So, in other words, uh, it's status quo right now. Uh, clearly, uh, we're seeing things start to uh, reopen up. We, we're hearing about the U.S. border and how they will open up that for Canadians coming up in November and such. So you've got to wonder, uh, at what point, at what point do they realize that, uh, you, you know, how do you have a whole pile of people screaming and yelling in a stadium? You can't have people uh, in a civilized fashion sitting around a table uh, at a restaurant. It's it's very bizarre. Uh, we're going to keep trying to try to get somebody from the Ontario government uh, uh, government on to to address this. But as I said to you earlier on in the week, I'll be very surprised if we get to the weekend and there is not something on this. Uh, that being said, we're going to introduce you to uh, the owner of the Unique Restaurant Group coming up a little later on uh, this hour and have this discussion with him and what they're dealing with. And, and not only is it a capacity issue, but also uh, they were thinking that once the vaccine passport system was announced, that people would start coming back. And people are very hesitant and cautious to do so. Uh, so as well as capacity, the interest uh, is still waning as well. We're going to talk to Dr. Timothy Sly as well, an epidemiologist from Ryerson, and ask him his perspective on this exact debate, whether uh, we should be opening restaurants and such, considering where we are with stadiums, and of course, uh, the situation with the U.S. border and them chatting about reopening that in November to Canadians, uh, which seems kind of bizarre. And this is obviously fully vaccinated. We opened our border to them back in August. They're the ones that are, you know, having a hard time getting anyone vaccinated and seeing these surges. Whereas Canada, uh, with the exception of places like the Alberta and such, it's pretty much under control. And the vaccine rate is sitting about 85 percent. So you have to wonder at what point this all changes. And we'll certainly talk about that. Uh, coming up a little later on. Also looking for your last word. If you want to get up on the CHML soapbox and get it off your chest, uh, give Will a call at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Poll question of the day, and, and this in regard to uh, the border opening. With it opening to Canadians, allowing them to travel by land into the United States, uh, how early will you... Travel stateside, and there's about four options, but the biggest majority, the the answer with the largest uh, feedback is no plans, no plans to go, which is fascinating. Here's a clip from uh, Global's Jackson Proskow on the U.S. version of the border reopening. This is going to unfold in a couple of phases. Phase one, at some point in November, will allow fully vaccinated travelers, regardless of why they're coming across the border, to cross the border. That means if you're a tourist, if you have a vacation property, if you just want to go see family or friends, you can drive across the border so long as you are fully vaccinated. Essential travelers, like truck drivers, will not need proof of vaccination, at least not right away. But then in January, the rules change for everybody. And so what that means is by a certain date in January that's still to be determined, 
everybody crossing the border will need to be fully vaccinated to enter the United States, regardless of why they're coming into the country. Lots of chatter about various types of vaccines. So what will the border guards be looking for as you try to cross? Things are going to be somewhat different. There is no U.S. equivalent of the Arrive Can app, for example, where you have to upload your plan and schedule your crossing at the border. The U.S. doesn't have a system like that. Instead, what they'll do is ask travelers their vaccination status, and then random travelers will be pulled aside for secondary screening, at which point they may be asked to provide proof, either electronically or by showing their paper vaccination records. Uh, But at this point, it's really going to be an attestation, as they call it, and the U.S. does reserve the right to turn people back around and send them back into Canada if they're not satisfied that their vaccination meets the U.S. requirements. Lots of chatter about mixing doses. Obviously, we know what happened in Canada once uh, NACI and Health Canada came up with different uh, guidelines, I guess, around AstraZeneca. So what about mixed doses when you head to the U.S.? It's something they're still trying to work through. And last night in a background briefing with senior officials from the White House, we were actually told that that is going to be a decision made by the Centers for Disease Control. But obviously, this is not an issue exclusive to Canada. And it seems as though the U.S. is likely to trend in the direction of accepting uh, any WHO-approved vaccines. That means, for example, AstraZeneca, which is not used here in the United States, would likely be accepted. The mixing, mixing and matching is obviously a bit more of a complicated issue, but it's something they're working through, and they say they're very conscious of the fact that many Canadians do, in fact, have mixed doses. Jackson Proskow, Global's uh, U.S. correspondent, and their take from a U.S. perspective on opening the U.S. border to uh, land travel for Canadians uh, coming up in November. You can fill an arena or a stadium, but you can't fill a restaurant. Anya Sarbastava is with us, owner of Unique Restaurant Group. That includes, among others, Powerhouse, Southcote 53, uh, Pheasant Plucker, and District uh, Kitchen and Bar. Good afternoon, Anish. How are you today? Doing great, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well, but I'm, I'm, you know, even I'm confused at this point. Uh, I know restaurateurs have just ha- had a brutal time during this pandemic, trying to make ends meet, trying to stay afloat. And now we've got a situation where finally it looks like things are starting to open up and lots of people are getting vaccinated. But, and, and we're seeing stadiums even open up to full capacity. But still, the situation in the restaurant business hasn't changed. You must be pulling your hair out. Yeah, it's 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 extremely frustrating, and and you know not just frustrating, but not good for for employee morale, not good for the bottom line. Um, you know, when they announced the vaccine passports, yeah, obviously there was a lot of mixed feelings out in the community, as as you know. Um, but the hope was by only having vaccinated people indoors, we would be allowed to get back to normal capacity. Um, but that hasn't been the case so far, which has actually led to I think. The day that the um, vaccine passports were announced, our business dropped about 15 to 20 percent and has stayed that way since. So your business dropped since the vaccine passports announced? Yeah. Um, How do you explain that? So anecdotally, what we've heard is what we've seen. You've got about 15 percent of the population that's not vaccinated. So, of course, they're not coming in anymore. But the people who were um, coming in that were vaccinated, they haven't changed their behavior. So you're not going out more now than you were before just because the vaccine passwords. If you're going out once a week, you're still going out once a week. And there's still a lot of people who won't dine indoors, um, you know, whether it's out of fear or their their personal situation, whatever it might be. Um, And so, you know, right across the board, all our locations, it's not like it was Mm -hmm. driven by one location or anything like that. 
Uh, and speaking to people in the industry, a lot of people have said almost the exact same thing. Um, so that hurts, right? You enforce, you put the extra cost of enforcing these, you know, checking, you know, we got to have managers or hosts or security at the door to check the, uh, the passports. You got less people coming in. You still have capacity restrictions. It's, yeah, so in other words, in other words, Anish, yeah. what's happened here is the vaccine passport has not less led to more people coming in the door. It's just stopped that 15% from coming in. That's what we've seen. Absolutely. Because you would think, well, I would rather cater, cater to the 85% of the population than the 15% of the population. That's simply a numbers thing, but that you're not seeing that. We're not, we're not seeing that. Like, you know, like I said, the, and uh, there's just people who you don't go out more. I, I, yeah. That's the only way I can put it. So the yeah. 85% of people, you could argue that there were people who were still not comfortable coming in before the vaccine passport. We haven't seen that. Yeah. We had a, a very strong summer, both with our patio business and even indoors. But, um, you know, as we talked to our, our guests, the guests that we were seeing twice a week, we're still seeing twice a week. The guests we're seeing once a month, we're still seeing once a month. The vaccine passport hasn't really pushed people to change the behavior to come out more. Um, and, and like I said, there's just people who still, with, even with the passports, aren't comfortable. I was with, you know, two kind of friends, family over the weekend. They still won't dine indoors regardless. Yeah. So uh, will the opening of these restrictions on indoor dining, will that, do you think, ease people's feelings? Uh, what are your thoughts on the restrictions? Well, the, the, the restrictions really, yeah, I mean, my thoughts are that, it makes no sense to have these restrictions in place when you're only allowing vaccinated people indoors. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you alluded to the arenas and things like that. You know, I'm a, a big sports fan. I've been out to yeah. a Jays game, going to the Leafs game tonight. Um, the, the Those places, you're sitting shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. Um, they say you got to have masks on. All the masks are pulled down or, you know, people yeah. are eating and drinking. And you're shoulder to shoulder with all these strangers. And I can tell you from a, a restaurant perspective, we have the highest level of um, burden on us from a sanitary and cleanliness perspective, disinfecting all our surfaces, cleaning, all that type of stuff. We know a food service establishment to start, but even with COVID, it's gotten yeah. even more rigorous. And then you've got our staff who not only are wearing masks, they're required to wear goggles. Um, there's, there's all these things in place that you don't have in these large venues. And from the beginning of the pandemic, we have how many times have we heard about super spreader events and large gatherings? Well, you're allowing 10, 20, 30,000 people to sit next to each other, but you're not allowing 50 or 100 people to sit next to each other at a restaurant or a bar. And it just doesn't make sense. So from a restaurateur's perspective here, Anish, what, what's the solution moving forward? Obviously, you want to see the capacity opened up. But even that, even when you do open up that capacity, will you see people come in? I, I think you will because what you run into is is those bottleneck periods, right? Where yeah. uh, you know there's there's times of the the week where if I look at our business, obviously Friday and Saturday nights we could do much more business than we are right now, just because we just can't put more people in, right? Yeah. Um, the other big part of our business is our late night business, right? We have live music every weekend, but right now for live music, I have to limit my capacity to forty or fifty people instead of one hundred and twenty. And we're turning people away constantly because we just can't let them in. Yeah. Um, and the third part of it would be, you know, kind of larger private gatherings. You know, people want to have a, a celebration of life or a retirement party or a birthday yeah. party. Um, we're unable to accommodate them right now because we can't physically put that many people into buildings. So there's a lot of different aspects to the, you know, w- will it help our, you know, Monday lunch business? No, because we're not full as it is. So the capacity limitations aren't hurting us. But there's enough points in the week and enough uh, enough other occasions during the week where right now we're having to turn people away um, because we just can't 
taking that capacity right now. So how do you change customers' attitudes and make them feel welcome and, and encourage them to come in? Um, I think it's continuing to reinforce the things we are doing um, from a, a cleanliness and a sanitation uh, you know, uh, perspective. But I think the reality is a lot of that burden, or I don't even know if it's a burden, but a lot of it just falls on people's own personal situation and comfort level. You know, I've got a, a cousin who last weekend was saying he hasn't gone, him and his family have not dined indoors, and they don't plan on dining indoors because they've got a two-year-old who can't get vaccinated. Yeah. So I, I think part of it is just the acceptance that you're not going to convince people um, until they feel comfortable to come in. Mm. And, and that's not really, I think, as an industry, our goal right now. I think our, our goal is to, you know, just have the opportunity to bring in the people who do want to come in and, and do want to be there that we're having to turn away right now. Anders Sebastava has been with us, owner of Unique Restaurant Group, including Powerhouse, District Kitchen and Bar, South Cope 53, and the Pheasant Plucker. Anish, uh, I know this has been a tough time. Keep the uh, chin up and the nose down. Uh, you guys are going to get out the other end, as I know uh, the rest of the restaurant business will. But in the meantime, get out and support your local restaurant. Anish, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thanks for your support, Scott. All right, lots of chatter in regard to COVID-19 coming out of this global pandemic as vaccination rates continue to uh, increase, and and good on you for that. Uh, but now discussions about capacity limits, stadiums versus restaurants, other provinces maybe not faring as well as Ontario during this pandemic, and now chatter of the U.S. border opening up to Canadians coming up in November. Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor, School of Population Public Health, Ryerson University, and with us now doctor thank you for the time i hope you're well i am scott thank you we can fill an arena we can fill a stadium but we still can't fill a restaurant is it time to re-examine some of these capacity protocols i think we need to look at them carefully and see what we're really supposed to be doing here i think the general general idea is good to protect people but i think when we look balance one against another and it doesn't quite come out the same i mean arenas Outdoors, anything outdoors, we know is orders of magnitude safer than indoors. But then again, a lot of sports stuff is indoors as well as outdoors, some of those arenas and stadia and so on. So we've got to look at those carefully. When What we do know, we've got these, uh, we've talked about before, these seven C's of COVID, and the, everyone begins to see that, that one of them is, of course, closeness and large numbers of people together for a long time. And when they're all yelling and shouting and on their feet and, and what's, what are there's a wonderful chance for a transmission. And much like it is in a restaurant when you're all huddled together because the noise is so much and you've got to be that close to, 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 to hear people saying. So it's very co- comparable. I don't see why one would be different from another if they're both indoors. And considering the vaccination rates are where they are, plus... Uh, now we have uh, a certificate program, so you can't enter any of these establishments unless you are fully vaccinated. I think a lot of restaurants and such thought that would change things, but I'm not sure the vaccine passport has helped. We just had uh, one restaurateur uh, on that said that they were hoping that once this was announced that, that things would pick up, but people are still hesitant. I think, yeah, well, let's face it, Scott. I mean, we've been, what, 20 months now, is it? Something like that, 21 mm-hmm. months uh, so they're hiding away in our basements almost, and it's it, it 
people are a bit cautious about stepping outside and getting involved in a, in a huddle again for whatever reason. And that's understandable. It'll take a little while to get back to some kind of normality. But remember, nothing in this uh, pandemic since the very beginning has been 100% safe or unsafe. It's always been sort of a gray area in between. So you, you do the best you can. You layer up all these precautions. And one of them is, is vaccination. Another is declaration or verification of the vaccine. And, uh, and it comes along. Ontario is doing well. I like what you said at the top. Ontario is actually doing, compared with the other provinces, probably yeah. among the top at the moment. There was a time when there were dark days in Toronto, in Ontario, but we're doing well. Compared with the western provinces, particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan, and even even the, uh, even the northern territories and uh, New Brunswick. And they're also talking about increasing numbers in Nova Scotia now. So how do you explain those hot spots like Alberta or Saskatchewan or even in Nova Scotia when Ontario is doing well? And, and how do we make sure we don't relapse? If you look closely, yeah, there's the thing. Uh, we, we, we can't relapse. This thing is playing playing uh, cat and mouse with us right from the very beginning. So the moment you start to relax and say, yeah, I think we've got the, we, we, we got this thing nailed down now. We can relax. That's when it rises up and, and bites you in the rear end again. So we've got to be very, very careful. But we're doing the right thing. Ontario, with this combination of, of uh, vaccination and um, all those mitigation things, you know, the distancing, the mask, and the hand washing, and so on, they seem to be working. Let's hold the course. Let's not relax too soon. And I think we may be out of this. Let's hope there's not a fifth wave. The last thing I want to do, even though I like to talk to you, I don't want to be talking with you another couple of months later. We've just got through our fifth wave. We're now into our sixth wave. We don't want that. That being said, we've just experienced the Thanksgiving holiday. I remember talking to you and and, and other experts over the course of this. uh, I think we're on week 82 right now, uh, Tim, week number 82. And and everybody was always concerned after a holiday weekend because there was a gathering of some sort. So here we have just experienced pretty much the first holiday with a very high rate of vaccination. People let a, a few more into their little inner circle as long as they were vaccinated and such. Are we expecting a, a rise in cases in the next week or so? And if we don't, does that not prove we are on the track, right track, and we can start to open things up? Well, it's, yeah, I think the first, first question you had there, do we expect any increase in cases? Yes, unfortunately we do. We've seen an increase every single time, whether it's Mardi Gras in, in New Orleans or Christmas or, or whatever it is. So, But the, the, here's the thing, we don't want it to be more than a handful of cases. We don't want to see another exponential surge. We want a little blip maybe here and there, some, some brush fire we need to put out, a little, a little outbreak here and there, but we don't want to see massive numbers. So hold on, it's only been... Uh, what seven days since uh, since the uh, celebration? What Monday it was? Mm-hmm. What are we on yeah. now? Uh, Thursday, Wednesday. It's not even been a week yet. So give it uh, give it about ten to fourteen days, and we'll begin to see just how big the 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 bump is. Let's hope it doesn't go too far up there. But no, in general, even general, look at the seven day averages all the way through our RT value, our E value, if you like. That's the look at the transmission. It's still below one. It's about point nine six below. It's below one. It's 
it's a tipping point. It's going down, down, down. Our positivity rate's about to 2%. Last time I looked, which is this morning, that's good as well. We, we had up there 9 and 10, 11% in certain parts. We don't want to see that anymore. And it's moving in the right direction. The incidence is down. The hospitalization is, is steady, but it's going down. We've got some capacity now. So opening the border, as you mentioned, isn't a bad thing. It should have probably happened a little bit earlier, but I'm glad we held off a bit. Because remember, since the very beginning, whether it's Vancouver or wherever, travel was associated with new outbreaks of COVID. So we've got to be careful with that, too. But at the moment, Ontario is better than a lot of the places south of the border. So with that being said, and again, as we continue to see vaccination rates rise above 80%, should the restaurants, gyms, or retail that has a restriction on on space now go to full capacity? Is it time for that? Not completely back to normal. It's not too early to that. I think yeah. we've still got to be careful. This thing has not gone away. Just look at certain hot spots in Canada, as well as the United States, as well as the other parts of the world, where they thought they were out of it. Suddenly, there's a fire raging the other side of the door, and it's coming in. It, it, it can happen. This thing is uh, is now has an R naught. That's a that's a potential, uh, like a theoretical w- way of transmitting of, of close to about seven and a half to eight. With, with originally it was about two and a half or two point seven. This thing can transmit very very easily, much much more than the original one, and it will take over if we don't watch out. Uh, what we're looking at when we look at the old herd immunity idea, because we're still aiming toward that, whether we'll actually reach it or not, but they still need to aim toward it. We need about 90, 92%, and we're actually at the moment about 72%. Remember, it's a whole population, not just yeah. The eligibles. Yeah, and we're, yeah, we're those eligible, which yeah. is still Once 12 plus, right? Back in, the kids will yeah. add another, you know, 7, 8%, and that'll help us along, but we still know the way to go. We've still got some hesitating people. I'm not too sure what they're waiting for, but let's try and encourage them to get vaccinated. We're in the right direction. Let's hang on. Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor, School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Bye-bye. If you're all about drama and gossip, well, this isn't for you. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, heard after the 6 o'clock news tonight, and, of course, a columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. Hello, Scott. How are you today? Could not be better, Scott. How are you? I'm, I'm doing very well. as good as William Shatner. Really? That. that should have been You've... my answer. I'm almost as good as William Shatner. To this. So you feel as good as, as if you'd just taken a flight into space? You know what? I, I Look, I, I'm, we're going to be talking about this later on the show, but I'll, I'll say the one thing about William Shatner going up there today, and it's not necessarily a positive thing. The, what a surprise! The, no, but, but if <laughs> William Shatner, if a 90-year-old man with no training in the shape of a 90-year-old man can go up and do this, does it not kind of in some ways take some of the, I don't know, something off the whole astronaut thing? Like, anybody can do it, apparently. I don't know. You know what? I asked I asked Chris Hadfield that yesterday, and he said absolutely not. Uh, Shatner's one of his heroes, so watching him in space inspired him to go up, and now that he can see him go up, he thought it was absolutely fabulous because now everyone can experience, well, 
the very wealthy, uh, what he has already experienced. And then drew the comparison to, to air travel and, and jet airliners and yeah. such, which, you know, only could be used by those. But yeah, you know, I mean, you know, you've, you've just dropped the price of an astronaut, I'm guessing, but you know, it's a bit different riding in this. It's a bit different riding in the school bus than it is actually driving it. You know what the biggest disappointment to me was today, though? And this is like, I watched it. Um, it was over yeah. quick. Yeah, it was. I was shocked how quick it was. It was like under ten minutes, maybe yeah. five. I don't know, but no. Who was the director of this program that didn't put a camera inside the capsule to show Captain Kirk? I think we have that. It's just they wanted that private until they edited. Right. That's my guess. I hope so I hope so. Because in case you know, in case Bill starts erping, I mean, you don't want that on live TV, do you? <laughs> I I suppose you're right, but surely they can put it on a three second delay or something and pull back yeah. i don't know just, so all you that, see is him going for the bag and then they black out oh I, oh you're <laughs> just talking about air sickness see at, th- at that speed with that number of g-forces i don't think the sickness would have come out of you I, yeah. I think it would have been pressed back you couldn't have been sick i wouldn't think. I, that's a question i'd love to know like if you're if you're an yeah. astronaut nothing's coming you, up <laughs> can you be sick is it even physically possible that's right so when you're pulling four g's man nothing's coming out <laughs> So I flew with the Snowbirds one time, many, many, Did many, you many really? years ago. Yeah, I was I was working at another paper, and I got to take a turn with the Snowbirds. Oh, man. And I'll tell you, now, I don't even remember. It was a G, maybe 1G or a G. I don't even know what the yeah. G-forces was. But back in the day, we didn't have the phone cameras. We had camera cameras, like big, yeah. honking cameras. And we were pulling it enough force that when I put the camera up against my visor with the helmet on to take a picture, I took my hand away, and the camera stayed there. Oh, man. Wow. Wow. It it felt like, and again, I mean, I think it may have been maybe not even a G. I don't think we broke the speed of sound. So, I mean, we we, we surely didn't. But it was fast enough when you were doing the, I guess it was an incline or a decline. I don't know what it was. Yeah. um, Like, for an average, you know, amateur like me, boy, it felt like someone was already sitting on your chest. And I can't imagine now when you're going, I think at the top speed, what were they going, like 3,000 miles an hour? Or something. Uh, if you look, at apparently, the apparently, like you know, this one isn't as bad as some of the others because they're basically going up and then they're touching the edge of space and then dropping back down. So I don't think it's as as much as as obviously Bill, with a, Bill, a real. I, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure that uh, Captain Kirk's jowls were vibrating on the way up. Let's put it that way. Well, and there's the answer to your question about the photography in the capsule. <laughs> who wants Who wants to see a nine year old man with his jowls flapping <laughs> in the breeze? <laughs> Exactly. I'm thinking of a Looney Tunes cartoon right now. All right. Yeah, all right. I, I think it's great. Do you, uh, you know what? Do you think the reaction will be different to his? We talked about this before, as opposed to the billionaires that went up. Are people more forgiving of uh, William Shatner oh, sure. going up than they were of Bezos or the rest of them? Sure. Why not? I mean, look. Why? If, if why Jeff, is that, though? Why a different opinion here? I mean, it's Jeff still a technology. Bezos, yeah, but if Jeff Bezos walked up to you, Scott, and says, here, I'd like to give you a seat on my rocket. First of all, I'm sure you're going to. I'm not sure that'd be this. I'm not sure that'd be the choice of words that he would use. But you know, speaking. Of, by the way, before I answer, speaking of Jeff Bezos's rocket, I don't think we can dance around this one anymore. Is there? Oh, some, please, there, don't okay. even go there. I had never seen Jeff Bezos's spaceship rocket before today. For some reason, I'm looking at this going. 
wait a second, is this supposed, who is the designer of this thing? Who I will say this because I have had this discussion with Paul Delaney, uh, astronomy professor, York University. There is a reason that rockets are shaped the way they are. And any yeah, physics professor one, will glad, well, Again, this one, the, the capsule's larger because it's designed for view. It's got more windows. It's, 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 it's designed like your living room rather than, so the biggest part of the All capsule right. is right. the this actual. One looks, this one looks like a Jeff and as I have said situation. And as I have said before, there's a reason that rockets and the piece of the human anatomy that you're referring to are shaped the way they are. Can we move on? All right. We can move on, yes. Scott Radley, uh, we're out of time. Look at that. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> We're getting the whistle. All right, Scott, thanks so much. Uh, have a great show, and uh, may peace be with you. Yeah, Nanu, thanks for the, I, Yeah, exactly. I don't know how to come out of this now. Thank you, Scott. Have a great show. All right, that is a wrap for this one, and maybe the last one ever. Uh, thank you so much for participating. Thanks to Will and Ted and Diana for being a part of it. As always, with Hamilton Today and CHML, we leave it to you. The good listener, to have the last word, and here is Tony's. When you have an arena and you got 20,000 people going into it, that's big money. But when you got a bunch of little restaurants that only have maybe 10 tables or 15 tables, they're a nobody into the other, so they can pick on them. There you go.